And Father, we come before You asking now that You would be the one speaking and not I, that those who are listening would have soft hearts, open ears, and an open mind. Sometimes we come to subjects we think we know inside and out so that we don't listen. Help us to listen today. Remind us of truth. Remind us of the hope found in the Gospel. Many of us say we have accepted your Gospel, but quite frankly our emotions and our lives and the trajectories of our lives show otherwise. If that's the case, may you use this message to put us back on track, as it were. Help us to be excited because it's an exciting news. And help us to be willing and able and wanting to share its truth with others. We thank you for it. Holy Spirit, please say what it is you desire and get me out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Humans need redemption. Amen. There's one undergirding promise that presidential candidates are trying to sell every election season and fail miserably. Is there a both selling, or what they're trying to, uh, what they fail miserably at is both selling and producing is redemption. Because everyone agrees, if they think about it, that this world stinks and needs redemption. Violence shouldn't happen. Injustice shouldn't happen. Racism shouldn't happen. Broken relationships shouldn't happen. Betrayals shouldn't happen. Stress shouldn't happen. But all of this does happen. And what we try to do is legislate redemption. We try to vote in redemption. We try to educate redemption. Because we all agree that something is very wrong in the world. And wrongs need to be righted. Tragedies need to stop. And crime needs to stop. And hatred needs to stop. And we can all agree there. But what we can't agree on is what to do about it. What do we do about this? How can this be fixed? Our fifth doctrine in the faith and practice is called human redemption, and it's stated this way. It says, We believe that God created the human being, male and female, in His own image. But that when Adam and Eve fell from a state of holy obedience, the human race lost a perfect relationship to God, and self, instead of the Creator, became the center of life. Through the blood of Christ our Savior, we may be recovered from the fall and made right or justified before God. To those who put their faith in Christ, God offers forgiveness of sins, regeneration of affections and actions, and final glorification of the resurrected body. So this is really the good news that Christians have to offer. You know, one of the things that took me a while to come to appreciate is actually the doctrine of this faith and practice. Human redemption, because at first I was thrown by the lack of God's name or Christ in that title, right? Why isn't it our, you know, Christ's offer of salvation or at least God's plan to save humanity? But I again, but I then begin to appreciate what this doctrine in its name and this statement captures 
And that is what Christ is accomplishing is the redemption of humanity, as in redemption or restoring or a buying back that, that we have this beginning or this intention of humanity, this purpose for it. And when man fails and falls from it, God redeems it to its original intent. We see the intention of humanity, firstly in this statement, we read, we believe that God created the human being, male and female, in His own image. So you need to hear that salvation has everything to do with what you are created for. You're listening closely. This is where we uncover the profound problem in our lives. This is where we diagnose what went wrong. We, we need to start back in a perfect world where there was nothing to be redeemed because it was all good. <laughs> in a perfect world, we are created to reflect God's image. Which is a symbolic way of saying that we are created to worship Him. I bring up these passages often from Isaiah 43 and verse 7. It says that we were made for the glory of God. Formed and made for Him. Verse 21 says that we were formed for Himself to declare His praise. You need to understand this. Airplanes are made to fly. Toasters are made to toast bread or muffins. <laughs> Ovens are made to cook. Cars are made to drive. And people are made to worship. We are designed to worship. I've used this illustration before, but when I was a kid, I, I had phases. I had phases where I loved, for example, the whole Star Wars series. And so what did I do? I watched... The movies, I watched shows about how the movies were made. I got coloring books. I, I requested, uh, you know, toys. And I, and I talked about that. And I played video games and board games about it. But then this went from media franchise to media franchise. It was Star Wars. Everything Star Wars. It was Star Trek. Everything Star Trek. It was Batman. And so, when you desire something so intently that you are willing to pursue it and fill up your time with it multiple ways, Friends, that's worship. That's worship. Some of us get older, and since we're not worshiping superheroes anymore, we think we don't have that problem. But we're made to worship. And if we're not worshiping Jesus, what are you worshiping? And you say, not I. And then I ask, okay, what occupies most of your time? Is there, is there something that stretches across multiple compartments of your life? Whenever you just don't do something, but you watch movies about it, you read about it, you study it, you learn more about it, you converse about it, you think about it, could it be that you're trying to worship? And many times it's craftier. You, you might say, I don't have much of a cause or a thing like that. But then you're big into self-care and self-help and self-interest and you say things like, I deserve this because you worship self. See, you and I are created to worship. It's only natural. Our statement in, in faith and practice would go on to say, but that when Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve fell from a state of holy obedience, the human race lost a perfect relationship to God and self instead of the Creator became the center of life. There is an, an interesting 
separating factor in creation that, that emphasizes humanity's separateness from all other created things. In Genesis chapter 1, God is speaking the entire world into existence. And we rightly assume that, that all of creation is obeying every, God's every command. We should be cued into something rather telling when He makes man and He says, I have a rule. <laughs> there is a tree I don't want you eating from. If ever a reader existed in a vacuum and was reading the creation account for the first time, he might be quick to say, well, why are you handing out rules, God? <laughs> All of creation just obeyed you to be formed in the first place. Right? We don't, we don't hear God saying, hey, you deciduous tree, you can be green, brown, yellow, and red, or different shades based on the year, but don't ever let me catch you being hot pink. <laughs> I don't want you to be hot pink. If you do, it's over. We don't see God handing out commands to any other creation. Yet to mankind, He says, I have a rule for you. I, I want some obedience here. Why? From the get-go, God wants to love and be loved. You have lots of verses. Oh, I was going to have lots of verses up here. Maybe not. Love. Oh, I... Okay. Well, love is not coerced and taken by commandment. Let me say that again. Love is not coerced and taken by commandment. It may be commanded, but it's voluntarily given by obeyers. See, that's why we have a free will. It's why we have a choice to say yes or no. We need to really understand what I said about Isaiah 43 or 47, verse 3 and 21 to really appreciate the problem. I am fully convinced that to be made in the image of God and made to glorify Him and praise Him is where we'll, we will be most satisfied as people. If you have a pet, do you ever go home and ask your dog or your cat or your goldfish and say, are you just empty inside? <laughs> are you questioning your lot in life? Do you ever feel like you're not living a fulfilled life? Now, Janice is watching, so I can say she probably asks her cats that. No, she doesn't. <laughs> As far as we know, while our dogs can express sadness because the master's not home or because they're bored, what they're not doing is they're not being depressed like humans are and looking actively for a way to kill themselves. <laughs> Even dogs who play in traffic are, are not doing it from a suicidal tendency. They're doing it for a lack of brain power. <laughs> and my point is this, is that humanity is the only race that deals with straits of emptiness and despair questioning their existence. See, a human being created to worship can only take so much of not doing what they were made for. Whether you are a believer or a non-believer and you are in dire straits or feeling empty or feeling lost and feeling broken and something's not quite matching up and you need help, the only way to close that gap is worshiping God. The gap between a perfect world and, hey, this world needs redemption is worship. <laughs> it's worship. That's what you were made for. See, the logic that we human beings try to use to get us out of our sadness, if we don't worship God, 
It's really about as logical as telling an airplane to build a house if he wants to feel better about his life. (laughs) Nope, airplanes are made to fly and you and I are made to worship. So we image and we glorify and we praise God, our purpose in life. To praise God, we do that by love and obedience. And therefore, a lack of love and disobedience leads to the fall of humanity. And that's when self becomes the center of life instead of creator. This is really an an infection or a perversion of life. Self is not within the creator's intentions or purposes to be the center of life. That's just a fact. It's a fact that's highly offensive to the world. See, the world is is all about self and realizing our true potential by being self-absorbed to the point of bordering on narcissism. And maybe that's okay if we cover it up with a, a superficial expression of care for others. Meanwhile, the way humanity should operate is placing God front and center and all-consuming center of life. To demonstrate this again, imagine if a bunch of airplanes got together and said, we believe airplanes function best by just being made and then sitting. (laughs) Just being us, because we're so great. And so here are all these airplanes never taking to the skies because suddenly airplanes disagreed with their creators and came up with a better plan for their lives. They would never fly. Humanity's infatuation with self is like making airplanes to sit for their entire lives. You and I are created to make God creator and central to our lives. So that when we remove Him and we put ourselves there, we are going against the grain of creation. We are hindering progress. We're hindering thriving fulfillment and satisfaction. We are doing damage to the reality that creation was set up in. We're pulling a power plug because suddenly we are perverting creation. Death is brought because humanity loses its lifeline. Humanity unwittingly tried to bend the human heart in on itself and just like taking a power cord out of the plug-in and trying to connect it back into itself doesn't work Neither does creation work when it rebels against its created purpose. This is the reality of Genesis 3. Most of us, I think, know the Genesis 3 story, but what I just demonstrated is that the implications of that chapter are deeper. See, the fall is not as much about a man and a woman who chose to eat a forbidden fruit and and disobeying God, though I believe, of course, literally, that's what happened historically. But the ramifications and the implications is that God's prized creation, created in the image of God, created to reflect and worship God, suddenly disobey their Creator and go against what they were created for, and they pervert the normal course this perfect world existed in. So what needs to take place? Adam and Eve were in this garden. They literally had one rule. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 literally says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you hear the liberality in that? Every tree in the garden is yours. 
Like, <laughs> this still happens though. You and I tend to look over the abundance that we have to create, to crave that what we don't have. It's why mom and dad, you know, gave me the limit on only two cookies after lunch and I told myself, yeah, I'm getting three. <laughs> Doesn't matter if I was hungry or not. There's just something about that personal choice of mine that made me feel like I won up them. We have this weird infatuation with things that we're told not to do. So much it gets fuzzy in our memory. When Eve is tempted with this tree, she even adds to the rules. Genesis 3, 3 and 4 says, But God said, Eve is talking here, But God said, You should not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. See, Eve adds to the rules. I can't even touch that tree. I'm going to die if I do. (laughs) Some say Eve kind of acts like the first Pharisee here, right? Pharisees were those people who not only followed and knew God's law, but they added to it, added more traditions. We're not just going to be holy, we're going to be super holy. And we're going to add more laws and regulations and make sure we're really good at impressing God. (laughs) As if that could happen. See, God's heart is generous. Have the whole garden. Just one tree. The whole garden is yours, but don't eat off of this one tree. God's testing humanity to see if they really do love. They really do trust God. But we often think we know better than God. That's when we say, God, you're not center, I'm center. You've given me some advice, but I'll take it from here. When what was God's reasoning to not eat off the tree? You shall surely die. That sounds like a big problem. See, you need to know this, that God doesn't have rules to harm us. He has rules to protect us. It's the same with your kids, right? Calvin's asked me this before. Dad, why can't I ride my bike on the road when you're not out here? Because I don't want you to have any fun, Calvin. That's why. (laughs) No. It's because I don't trust him to watch for cars yet, and I kind of want to see my kid grow up. God's our Creator. He knows where we'll thrive, where we'll be satisfied. and He knows what slowly eats away at us. He knows what causes the world's problems. Don't eat the fruit, you'll surely die. What happens when Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit? We see the first foreshadows of God's grace. A few things happen in Genesis 3, but the biggest is that God promises Jesus. And He does it in two ways. He does it in word and He does it in deed. He promises Jesus in in the way of the Word. He says this to the serpent. Now, you need to know about the serpent. He is later revealed to be Satan. He's also known as the deceiver and a liar. See, this is the guy telling you that it's not nice on God's part to have the whole garden available, but to keep the one tree from you, because it will harm you. The enemy says, no, God's keeping things from you because you'll actually enjoy them. God's a fun stiller. He's not a harm protector. Not true. Satan's a liar. He's a deceiver. And so to Satan, after the fruit is eaten, God says this, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, but also here symbolizing mankind, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is biblical language saying this. There are people... 
by virtue of ignoring, minimizing, or hating God's commands that are children or offspring of the serpent. And then there are people, persons who are offspring of the woman. In other words, the Bible presents a binary way of looking at the world, which is also offensive to the world for some reason. But the Bible understands that there are bad people and there are good people. But, spoiler alert, the rest of the Bible is going to paint a very dismal picture. Because everybody belongs to the evil group. <laughs> but one person is going to be reserved for the good group. And if you really think about this, sure, I get agitated at violent people torching down buildings in the name of peaceful protests. But what atrocities do I do that I minimize? What evil do I do that I justify? What sins do I commit that I say, well, I'm not as bad as blank, but it's still sin. And more often than not, I'm not torching somebody's business, but I'm torching bridges in people's hearts, and I'm still committing evil. See, the offspring of the woman actually becomes a symbol in the Bible. I think uh, the best uh, similar language is heard in Galatians 4. So upwards of 2,000 years after God spoke this in the garden, says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. God spoke those words in the garden because He was looking forward to His Son to finally redeem the situation. How is God's Son, namely Jesus, going to redeem this situation? And if you've been a Christian for a long time, that shouldn't be a hard question. <laughs> But it's actually expressed in the second promise of Jesus back in Genesis 3. So track with me. I told you that God promised Jesus in the garden in two ways, in word and deed. The promise of Jesus through deed is much more subtle since it is simply an action that we might miss if we don't think through what we're reading. Up until this point in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were living naked. Sure, it makes us wonder about them a little bit. <laughs> but the symbolism is this, they're unashamed. They're living in freedom. There's nothing to hide. They're vulnerable. They're transparent. They're not ashamed and not at all ashamed to be exposed because there's nothing to be ashamed about. Now, I'm not asking you this literally, but do you have this friend where you can tell them everything? That they know everything about you and you're not afraid to be completely transparent with? That's the, the symbolism that Adam and Eve were innocent as Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the humorous part is when they disobeyed God and, and ate of the fruit, they tried to hide from God. <laughs> like God made the world, sees all, knows all, but that's a really big rock. I wonder where Adam and Eve are. <laughs> but God's got good news even in discipline. Again, He tells the serpent, there's an offspring coming, He's going to crush your head, but then this happens in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Garments of skin, animal skins. What needed to happen? God had to kill some animals. According to the author of Hebrews, it seems to be given, like this is just understood that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In Leviticus, God declares for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It seems that in God's creation, He has given blood a significant category. All of the animal kingdom, as well as humanity, they find their life in the blood. It is 
that blood then that is required when that very life rebels and sins against its creator. Who committed the atrocity? Who literally had one rule and one rule in an entire garden to themselves? Adam and Eve. Who's guilty? Adam and Eve. Whose blood was called to make sure they repaid? Animals. (laughs) Animal skins. Note the symbolism. The blood of the animals are spilt and their skins are put on Adam and Eve. Our doctrinal statement would tell us about the redemption from Christ, stating that through the blood of Christ our Savior, we may be recovered from the fall and made made right or justified before God. Told you that the Jesus was talked about in word and deed. The promised offspring of the woman is coming, Adam and Eve, and he has come in Jesus. So Paul told us in Galatians 4.4, we looked at that. And what he will do is what God did in the garden with the animals, namely spill his own blood for all of humanity and become the skins that cover us. The similarity between Adam and the perfect world and Jesus and the fallen world is not lost on Paul. Paul would state in one of his other letters to a church in Rome, he says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. That's Jesus. But the free gift talking about the gift of salvation, of redemption that Jesus brings, is not like the trespass. Namely, the trespass in the garden that Adam and Eve are guilty of. For if many died through one man's trespass... Now, we need to see this. Adam, What Adam does is representative of what we all do. Like I was saying as I went through the story... We all would have eaten the fruit off the tree. It's who we are. You want that third cookie, don't you? (laughs) When you're only told to have two. And so what Adam does in a very real way translates to what we all do. We're all sinners. Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, if you watch the news this week or any week, you realize the world has a sin problem. And so Paul continues, for if many died... Through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Using an idiom here, many died through the trespass, Adam's sin, but much more have the grace and free gift that Jesus brings. Basically saying Jesus' redemption is much more powerful, much more weighty, it's much more good news than Adam's lousy decision in the garden. There was a song we probably should have sang today. It talks about grace greater than our sin. See, there is nothing you and I have ever done that will disqualify us from what Jesus offers. There is no bad deed that anyone on planet earth could ever do to disqualify them from receiving the grace of God. Adam and Eve are responsible for making the perfect world bad. And they're forgiven. Paul continues in verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Condemnation 
and justification. Two paths. Adam and Eve's decision brings us condemnation. But Christ, what He does is bring justification. So we move from condemned and guilty in our sins. We're an unholy and perfect people who offended a holy, perfect God. And if we die without the justification God gives us through Jesus, we die in sins. We die under Adam's condemnation. We're in Romans 5. If you go back to the very beginning of Romans 5, Paul opens it this way and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, there's the same word, that's what Christ brings us, we're declared right, we have been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. Faith is the access into being made right with God. Faith that Jesus is the promised offspring. Faith that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the broken body and shed blood that covers us from our sin. He is the reversal, the second Adam and the better Adam, who gives us justification, who gives us peace with God. We continue in verse 2. Through Him, says Paul, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace or loving kindness or being considered favored by God in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So this is the choice given humanity. This is how humanity is redeemed. Human redemption. Our our doctrinal statement ends this way. To those who put their faith in Christ, God offers forgiveness of sins, regeneration of affections and actions, and final glorification of the resurrected body. Many people know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus makes plain that God is saving the world. Everybody has access to this salvation. And it is through His only Son, Jesus. Now, what is amazing to me is even though everyone can agree that our world needs redemption, right? This is what we started with. Our world needs redemption. There are sinners constantly sinning. There are injustices happening. There is violence and racism and broken relationships. Whatever the case, we watch the news. It doesn't take too long before we can agree, wow, something's wrong. (laughs) We need some redemption. But then Christ comes and people are offended by Him. See, Christ comes, He gives Himself, He lays His life down. One of the most bewildering passages to me in the world. So Christ died, He's resurrected, showing that He's sinless, death is the price of sin, Christ didn't die because He's sinless. He's walking around and Matthew, a disciple of His who wrote a book about Him, called Matthew in the Bible, says, and when they saw Him, that is Jesus, they worshipped Him. We talked about this. Because He's resurrected, because He claimed to be God, and resurrecting after crucifixion, and dead, and being dead for as long as He was, kind of adds some weight to His claims. But some doubted. (laughs) Like, here's a resurrected guy, see the scars, that's not Jesus. That's bewildering to me. Some doubted. They doubted the man they saw before their eyes. It's bewildering to me, but it's also helpful for me because some people today still doubt. 
And I'm just saying, if we can all agree that the world needs redemption, God's given an answer. God's given redemption through Jesus. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This word eternal sometimes throws people off. We, uh, we live in a culture, a Christian culture, where for a long time we were given the definition of eternal, only one definition, that is immortality, that when you die, you live on in heaven forever. But languages have more than just words put to them. You understand this if you've ever written letters or emails or texts, and they weren't received the way you wrote them. And I do this often. It's why I call people in the middle of texting conversations. I need to hear them. I need to know verbally what, what shade of words they're using, how they sound. Do they sound snarky here? Eternal may not just have quantity, number connotations to it, but also quality connotations. Right? How old are you? I'm infinity. <laughs> That's quantity. Or how is the sequel to that movie? Infinitely better than the last one. That's quality. You hear the two different meanings? It's evident by the rest of the Scriptures that Jesus offers eternal life in both ways. Give you both ways from one author in the Bible in the same book. John 11 tells the story of Jesus coming to a family he loves. A man named Lazarus has passed away. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they sent word to Jesus, Hey, Lazarus is sick. Come here. Jesus waits because he's mean. Not really. But Jesus intentionally waited before he came. And Lazarus died. And, and consoling Martha, listen to the conversation here. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Do you hear the usual connotations? You believe in me, you'll have life after you die. That's eternal life, heaven, eternity. But if you go back a chapter earlier in John, we hear this from Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That sounds like a lot of people I see on the news right now. I'll just say that. But Jesus continues, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You hear that? <laughs> that sounds like a quality of life. Eternal life, infinite life, a life for the ages. That's what Jesus offers. Life that continues after you die and a life that is abundant now. I want to end with one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's in the same book of the Bible. And I've mentioned it, I know, several times in past sermons and even in this, I think in the study guide, if you're following along in the study guide. Jesus meets a woman at a well in John 4 and tells her, I offer an everlasting water where the thirst will be eternally quenched. That's just Kevin's lame version. But, and he says this in relation to her obvious thirst. She has a thirst in life. She's had five husbands and was living with a man at the time who wasn't even married. She's thirsted for true love. She's thirsted for a love that wouldn't let her down. She has a God-sized thirst and Christ is the God-sized thirst quencher. My point is, do you see how salvation is a restoration to this one-on-one -on -one community with God? It is a salvation from sins and a life in heaven, but it's also a salvation here and now. It's a life with God in the garden restoration. Salvation is Psalm 1611. You 
Make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, that's a present thing. And that's the thing I think the woman at the well was searching for in the wrong place. In romantic relationships. I saw this quote. Uh, I've seen it before and I think I've said it up here for war, but I love it. And that is, Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. I don't know where you're at. I have a fear that many Christians are are placing so much hope in the eternal life later that they overlook themselves in the eternal life now. The eternal life that we should be about. The God-centered life of fulfillment of worshiping God and glorifying God and praising God can be restored here and now through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, many of us are in trials, trials that the world is in right now, or trials personally, trials that we've related to other people, or perhaps trials that nobody else knows about. Whatever the case may be, would you give us a heart that wants to worship you? Not that we needlessly or carelessly ignore things that we should be working on or fixing on. But at the same time, your word promises joy in trials. Have joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of different kinds. That joy can be found in you, Lord Jesus. Perhaps the despair that we feel in our trials is not even related to the trial, but it's just putting ourself front and center, which is removing you where you should be. Father, we pray that you would help us to repent today. Would you forgive us of that sin? Would you be pleased be front and center in our lives? Would you help us to take pains to worship you in all that we do and say? Father, if there is something that's materially that we observe in our lives right now, whenever it was mentioned that sometimes we have an intense interest in something and it goes across many compartments of our lives, Father, if that is worship, would you convict us of what we are worshiping and remove our idols and instead worship you? Father, would we express the eternal life that you give us, the life abundant? Would we know it and would we live it? Father, we are grateful for the eternal life that you give after you we die. and We are grateful for the eternal life that starts now. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.